about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Those are beautiful words, but I wonder if you noticed uh, just what that prayer is all about. It's about a lifelong battle against enemies who seek to destroy us. Our own sin, a godless world, and the mightiest beast in the Bible, the devil. And I think we often fail to recognize the reality of the devil and the reality of spiritual warfare. And I think it's not, it's not something wild and fantastic. It's often very day-to-day. But the book of Daniel gives us a glimpse of this. It gives us a glimpse into the cosmic conflict between God and the devil that mostly occurs beyond our perception. And so here there's a quote from a Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper. He said this, If once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range, that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem, by comparison, a mere game. Not here, but up there. That is where the real conflict is waged, and our earthly struggle drones in its backlash. And it's not just sort of, I don't know, Lord of the Rings scenarios where we see the devil at work. He's actually also involved in the everyday evil of everyday life. Biblical counselor David Pallison says this, mundane evil is the devil's business. And I think we see that in the New Testament. For example, in James 3, uh, James says, everyday things like bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, these are not the wisdom that comes down from above, but these are earthly, unspiritual, and he is bold enough to say, demonic. He goes on to ask, what causes fights among you? Is it not the Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Things that we see in chapter 11, which we skipped over. But James says, what do we do about this? His solution is this, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And then he says, look who's lurking in the background here. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's the kind of thing that we actually are going to see tonight in our passage in Daniel. So if you remember chapter 7 and 8 of Daniel, Daniel was shown visions of great and terrible conflicts, images of vicious beasts that that seek to destroy God's people and fight against them. Here in chapters 10 to 12, we'll meet heavenly warriors who defend the saints against these evil supernatural powers. And this battle began back in Eden when the devil sought to exalt himself to God's place and he sowed seeds of selfish ambition, provoked jealous desires in Adam and Eve and that led to conflict between themselves and with God. And in doing so, he sought to destroy the relationship between God and his creation and that resulted in the curses of Genesis 3. And so God cursed the devil, consigning him to the dust. And then God sentenced the man and the woman to follow him to the dust in death, excluded from God's presence, from light, from life, from all things good. And so that's the battle that's in the background here in chapters 10 to 12, in fact, in all of Daniel. And here 
Faced with the results of the devil's desire to kill and destroy, Daniel is given a taste of God's life-giving presence and a glimpse of his power and of his plan to finally defeat the devil and undo the curse of death. And so in these chapters, we, we rewind again to chapter 7 and 8. But this time, not talking about beasts and things, but in chapter 11, which we don't have time to read, but in chapter 11, we'll see that they become very real and very descriptive. And they end up focusing on one particular individual who lived around 150, 160 BC, whose name was Antiochus IV. And here in chapters 10 to 12, Daniel is given a vision of God's closeness, of his control, and of his conquest of all evil human evil, spiritual evil, and in doing that, he cures the curse of death. So let's go to the text. Have a look at chapter 10, verse 1. We start out, says, the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. That might not mean much to you, but it actually tells us that Daniel has now been in exile about 69 years. And it's also been three years since Cyrus let many of the Jews go back to the promised land. About 50,000 went, according to Ezra, but not Daniel. Daniel is still here in Babylon. I suspect he's now realizing he's never going to make it home to Jerusalem. He's probably not feeling very good about that. He's probably feeling very distant from God. And I think we see that here in verse 2. It says, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. He was hungry and stinky. But Daniel is in mourning. doesn't say why he's in mourning. It might have been because the first month of the year is the time of the Passover, when they celebrate God's great deliverance. And, well, Daniel probably doesn't feel like it because he's still in exile. Or maybe he's got news back from Judah that, that things haven't gone as they thought. It's not the beginning of a new and wonderful era, just as he'd been warned in chapter 9. And so here we find Daniel, the 22nd of April, 536 BC. He's far from God's home. He's on the banks of the river Tigris, which flowed out of the Garden of Eden. And here in verse 12, we find he's fasting, he's praying, he's humbling himself before God, setting his heart to understand what the heck is going on. And as he draws near to God, God draws near to him, sending Jesus to meet Daniel in the dust of Babylon. Now, I say Jesus because I think the man described in Linden, verses 5 to 6, is actually Jesus. It might describe an angel. There's plenty of argument about that, but I don't think so. I think when you look at the text, when you, when you see how he's dressed in linen like a ministering priest, he's, he's a warrior. At least that's what his abs look like. He's got a voice like a multitude. His eyes are flames of fire. This is someone who looks like a divine warrior king, a priest. Now, as I said, there's lots of debate over this point. Uh, I won't go to the stake over this, but I think when we look at uh, John's encounter with Jesus in Revelation 1.9, there are so many similarities that I think this describes Jesus. Again, you look at Ezekiel's encounter with God in Ezekiel 1. I think this guy in linen is more divine than angelic. And again, when you get to John in Revelation and his reaction when he sees the risen Lord Jesus, or Paul's in Acts 9, again, they bear striking similarities to what we see here in Daniel. So I think it is Jesus. 
If you've got questions, you want some more uh, defense of that, text the panel for next week and they can solve all those problems. In front of this, Daniel is undone. He falls to the dust. Verse 9 says, As I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Daniel is crushed by Jesus' presence. But look how beautifully Jesus reacts. Verse 10, Behold, a hand touched me, set me trembling on my hands and knees, and he said to me, Oh, Daniel, precious man, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. At the touch of Jesus, Daniel is strengthened to hear the message. He asks for understanding, and he's not left in the dark. We see that in verse 1, that a word, a revelation was revealed to Daniel. Its content, content is burdensome. It's a great conflict. In fact, it's a series of great conflicts. And as chapter 10 progresses, every time Jesus speaks, Daniel is deeply affected. In verse 15, we see he's left mute. Verse 17, he says, I have no breath. He's left almost lifeless. And yet each time he's touched or he's spoken to tenderly by the Son of Man and given words of comfort. And so you see in verse 19, he says, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. See, Daniel learns that he is precious to God. He might be far from the promised land, but he is loved by God. And in his weakness, he learns to trust in Jesus' power to strengthen him and draw him up to his feet and set him on his feet. And Jesus, I think, came to Daniel's side back there in Babylon. But if you remember in our second reading from John's Gospel, we see that Jesus promises us that he'll be even closer. He says, I will come to you. And because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Eden comes to you. God is close. The beautiful words of Jesus here say that no matter what you see, no matter what you feel, no matter what your experience is, if you trust Jesus' word, you can be sure that God cannot get any closer to you than he already is. Daniel learns that God is close. He also learns that God is in control. Well, how does he learn this? Well, various ways. He's told that the word and the vision are true and they concern things of days yet to come. But these things in verse 21 are already written in God's book. God controls not just the present but also the future. And as we saw in John's Gospel, Jesus does the same thing. He comforts his disciples as he prepares them as they face something similar to Daniel, an uncertain and hostile future. And so there he says to them, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. See, Daniel also learns that God controls the present, because he sees that Jesus and his angels have been battling these supernatural enemies of God that we see mysteriously in verse 13, these prince and kings of the kingdom of Persia. And then later in verse 17, king of Greece. These appear to be powerful supernatural beings. 
rulers of these kingdoms that somehow personify these kingdoms, and, and even Jesus needs help to subdue them. Well, who are these beings? We don't really know. That's all we have in the text here. Text your questions to the panel. I hope I'm not in the panel. (laughs) Whatever is happening, it's a mighty battle. And it's a supernatural battle, and it affects things that happen in Daniel's life, and yet it is not beyond God's control. Jesus can drop his sword and come over to Daniel to encourage him. And in chapter 11, Daniel sees more of God's control because he's given this incredible detailed description of things that will happen 400 years or so in the future. And we didn't read chapter 11, but basically it goes through uh, a series of kings in the beginning, in the, in the breakup of the empire of um, Alexander the Great. Two of the four sort of regions that, that came to power, uh, one's called the king of the north, one's called the king of the south, fight these endless battles. You might ask, north, south, where? Well, it's north and south of Israel. The kings of the north fight the kings of the south. The kings of the south fight the kings of the north, and Israel is in the middle. And therefore, they get trampled on forever. And that's why this is important for Daniel. And the details there are so detailed and so accurate that you can read the history books and you can see names and dates, and they align beautifully with what's described. But you get to the second half of the chapter, And in verse 21 to the end of the chapter, it zooms right in on the guy who's called the little horn in chapter 7 and 8. Here he's described not as a horn, but as a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. This is the guy known to history as Antiochus IV. He's a guy who's contemptible in the eyes of God, but he's a guy who thinks he should be a royal king. And he's presented as like the climax of all these rulers, but he's like the most evil of them all, almost like the devil incarnate. He hates God's people. In verse 28, it says, his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he has his desire to destroy. Verse 44, it says, he goes out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. This guy attacks God's people and tries to turn them for their worship of God. And in the center of the chapter, verse 31 and 32, we see that it says, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. Well, these verses describe the events that we can read of in history when uh, Antiochus slaughtered the people of Jerusalem. He ransacked the temple. He sacrificed a pig on God's altar, and then... Capital off, he set up a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. And if that wasn't bad enough, he then got Jews every day to come and bow down to this statue. And if they didn't, he tortured them to death. You can read about it in the book of Maccabees. But as the chapter continues in verses 36 to 45, there's, there's a shift. He's not content with attacking God's people. He wants to be bigger and better. So in verse 36 we see, He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall magnify himself above all. Sounds a bit like Satan. He wants to be like God. This guy, Antiochus, we know from history, called himself Epiphanes. God manifest. He thought he was something. 
But also in these verses, the story begins to diverge a little bit from what we know in history. And that causes questions. But I think the solution is in verse 40 where we see the time of the end mentioned. And I think maybe what's happening here is the vision is telescoping the description of Antiochus into this sort of arch-ruler, arch-evil guy. Many see this as a prophecy of the end-time Antichrist figure that we, reach, uh, we see in Revelation and other New Testament books. I think something of that in there. Maybe it's best to see him as a, a generic version of every evil king, a kind of devil incarnate whose desire continues to be the destruction of every good thing God has created. And yet despite his power, Daniel sees that God is still in control. Throughout chapter 11, we read constantly about times, about set times, about things being determined and things awaiting their appointed time. Because God has the times in his hand. Everything is moving forwards to verse 40, the time of the end. And later on, after we see in the beginning of chapter 12, what will happen at the end? Verse 6 of chapter 12, someone asks, how long will it be till the end of these wonders? And the answer is one of these lovely enigmatic answers in Daniel, a time times and half a time. What does that mean? It's not very long. Maybe it's half a week. This is the Ancient of Days, the Eternal One who says it, so I guess it's not very long for God. The point is, God has control over that time. He knows how long it is, even to the day. That's why I think we have these numbers at the end of chapter 12, 1,290 days, 1,335 days. God knows even to the day when things will happen, because he has control. Ian Duguid is a commentator, and he writes that like Daniel, we can trust that the timing of the exact end of our trials is known precisely to the Lord. If that is true, then I should trust that my Father will not put me through any unnecessary trials, nor will he keep me in them longer than is necessary for my good even when I cannot see that good myself. He will not put me through any unnecessary trials, and he will not keep me in them longer than is necessary. That should be a great encouragement to us, to know that God has our times in his hands, even if he doesn't give us the details. So we're about to head back to Chile for a couple of years. When I get back, I don't really know what I'm going to do. I don't know the future, and it makes me nervous. See, when we forget that God controls the future and and we try to control ourselves, we get very burdened. We get anxious, we can get overwhelmed because, well, we're not actually designed to know the future and control it. That's God's job. We also tend to become heavy-handed with people. or We get manipulative. We We want everyone around us to follow our agenda. We want God to follow our agenda. We want to know and we try to get things to fit in with our hopes and desires. See, God very rarely gives us details about our individual futures. Have you noticed that? The Bible sort of, instead of giving us a Google map, it gives us a compass and a heading. And I think it's God's mercy that he doesn't give us details. Do you really want to know when you're going to die and how? But I think it's also designed to drive us back to trust in the one who does know what will happen. See, throughout the book of Daniel, Daniel is told many detailed things about the future, but you notice he's never told anything about his own future. 
In chapter 12, after hearing of the great hope of the future, he asks for some specifics. And he's told, in effect, well, don't worry, I've got it. As for you, Daniel, go your way. Stuff will happen, then you'll die. That's okay. God is in control. God will bring you safely home, Daniel. Can you live like that? Can you trust that God will bring you nothing unnecessary, nor leave you in anything longer than is necessary? Daniel trusts God, and he learns that God has a timetable, and he's moving redemption history forward to a time when he will conquer all evil. See, Daniel's shown that God controls and even applies restraint to evil, even before the final victory. And I think we often forget that God is actually fighting to restrain evil. When we think things are going badly, we forget that maybe they could have been far worse if God hadn't already intervened without us knowing. And you'll notice if you do read chapter 11 that despite the power and the victories and the triumphs and the intrigues, every single one of the kings in chapter 11 is frustrated. Verse 4, we find out that this king's kingdom shall be plucked up. In verse 6, the next one, uh, his arms shall not endure. Verse 14, they shall fail. Verse 17 to 18, it shall not stand or be to his advantage, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Then verse 19, he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Time after time, these powerful kings cannot control the future. They are restrained by God. And Daniel has seen this himself in his own life. God has intervened sometimes to judge the foolish. Look at Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. He intervenes sometimes to save the wise, like he did with Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But sometimes his judgment, that is to condemn or to save, waits until the end. And so chapter 11 ends with a promise in verse 45 that even the greatest evil king, this sort of arch evil king, shall come to his end with none to help him. And in chapter 12, we turn from the death of this evil king and judgment on him to a vision of life for the saints. As Daniel is told that at the appointed time, God will raise up Michael to fight for his people. God will rescue every one of them by conquering the greatest enemy, death. And God will undo the curse of Genesis 3 by raising his people from the dust of death and restoring them to their allotted place in his presence. So in chapter 12, verse 1, Daniel is told, At that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And verse 3, those who are wise shall shine like the stars forever and ever. This is the great resurrection promise that gave Daniel hope. Now, some of you might know my mum died about six weeks ago. She was 89. She was sick with chronic fatigue for about 30 years, the last two of which she was pretty much in bed the whole time. She got diagnosed with lymphoma. And when the doctor asked if she wanted treatment, she said, heavens no, I don't want any chemo. I want to go to Jesus. She knew what that promise meant. She was literally hoping to die. And I went to visit my dad recently, and I found a little plastic box in the lounge room, which happens to be her ashes. And I thought, it's an interesting box here. Picked it up. It's heavier than I thought. Um, She was cremated. She will literally be brought back from the dust. She's already happened, I think. Is that your hope? Do you believe you'll be resurrected when you die? 
Do you really trust that Jesus can bring life back from the dust of death? If it isn't, maybe you want to have a chat with me or with someone else here who you're sitting next to. In John 5, Jesus says, I'm the one who does that. I will fulfill this promise at the appointed time. John 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. Again, he has the time in his hands. An hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear the voice of the Son of Man and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And then John 12, he explains how this happens, how he conquers the devil and Jesus, being life himself, dies to kill death. And he does it by means of his own death and his own resurrection. Jesus answered, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So how, how do we live in the light of this great resurrection promise? Daniel in chapter 12 verse 8 asks, what, what will be the outcome of these things? What can I expect now? And he's told, verse 9, go your way, Daniel. Many shall purify themselves and be refined. Wicked shall out wickedly. Those who are wise shall understand. Verse 13, go your way to the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. See, for Daniel, life in this dangerous world will go on until the appointed end when even death will be done for. In the light of the promised resurrection, I think go your way means, Daniel, be faithful to the present task that God has called you to. Don't fear the future. Daniel, like God's people in chapter 11, has already taken action. All the way through the book, we've seen him making wise decisions, seeking God's face, praying urgently. And with God's help, he has fought to be holy, not to be defiled by the world around him. He's trusted God's promises and he's shone like the brightness of the sky in a dark land. And we get to Ephesians, we see Paul picks up on this language about the church. Ephesians 5.8, he says, At one time you were darkness, but you are light in the Lord now. Walk as children of the light. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And just as in Daniel's day and in ours, Jesus is still Lord. God is still powerful. God is still merciful and close. Spiritual forces are still active. And God's people are still called to shine in difficult times. David Pallison writes this. He says, Ephesians is about our conflict with darkness, with ourselves, with other people, with the spiritual forces of evil. And Christ's triumph over all that is evil, dark, and deadly is a message throughout Ephesians. Spiritual warfare, as if you read the end of Ephesians chapter 6, this is our participation in the Lord's cosmic war with darkness. The Lord is a warrior. By his strength, we participate in what he is doing. And so like we see in chapter 10 of Daniel, Ephesians 1 to 3 points us to Christ's strength for us and in us. And like Daniel chapter 12, the second half of Ephesians 4 to 6 is all about putting on Christ, that is becoming like him. The armor of God in the spiritual warfare is basically putting on Christ's attributes. That's how we fight. That's how we live a life worthwhile for God. And the whole of the New Testament says we must do this together. 
Paul doesn't imagine there's a bunch of little individuals in armour running around, but he sees the body of Christ standing in battle together. So I thought I'd finish with this quote from David Pallison. He's a great author. He's written a book about standing firm in spiritual warfare. And he died in May this year, and I guess he's with the Lord already. And this is what he says. God's strength is a complete weaponry of light. Each component of his strength equips you to join the fight. The powers of wrong are strong. The wreckage of human life bears dreadful witness to this. But in the end, the wrong and false will be undone by the power and truth of God. Through Christ, God's strength will triumph over sin, the world, and the devil. In the end, we will stand with him, and they will all fall. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.